This is episode 15 with the Director of Research and Performance at Athletic Lab, a PhD in biomechanics, a coach to seven track and field national champions, and a lead instructor for coaching education for USA Track and Field and USA Weightlifting, Dr. Mike Young. Okay, we are all in for a treat today. This is a very special episode with one of the most widely respected and well-known strength and conditioning and sprinting experts in the world. Dr. Mike Young has degrees in exercise physiology, biomechanics, and coaching science. He's a USA track and field and USA weightlifting lead instructor. He's worked with everyone from recreational athletes to elite track and weightlifting competitors as well as consulting with the MLS, NFL, MLB, NHL, and PGA. If you weren't keeping track, that's professional soccer, football, baseball, hockey, and golf. He's authored or co-authored multiple peer-reviewed journal articles, lectured all around the world, and he's written two books. Mike Young makes me feel lazy, <laughs> and that's a good thing. There's a lot to learn from him and his pursuit of excellence, I think, is an ins inspiration to us all. Our conversation today is about speed development, how to improve your maximal velocity, or in other words, your top-end speed, the fastest that you're able to go, and how that's a valuable asset, even if you're a marathoner. Okay, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Mike Young. So Mike, thanks again for, uh, for coming on the Strength Running Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jason. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, so let's start with something you said during your TEDx talk in Calgary a few years ago. You said, what I am most passionate about is pushing the boundaries of human physiology to run insanely fast. So first, that's just an awesome quote. It excites me to train, to coach, to sprint, to discover my own personal boundaries. And that's what we're talking about today. That's our topic, running insanely fast. So this is going to be exciting. Oh, we have a similar passion. Yeah, so... You know, we can talk about running insanely fast or more specifically speed development. And uh, this is something that I know you spend a lot of time thinking about and, and working on with your athletes. And it's also something that is admittedly a bit outside of my wheelhouse as, as more of a pure distance running coach. So considering that and, you know, our audience today is, is not primarily elite runners or, or other PhDs in exercise science. Um, so maybe we should start with a basic question. What exactly is speed development? So as a practitioner, I think when we look at uh, speed development, I think we're looking at this in terms of two prongs. We need to address both of them, ideally, to uh, improve someone's speed. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is raise the ceiling of how fast someone can run. And those two prongs that contribute to that are the physical capacity of a person and their running mechanics. In terms of running mechanics, I think uh, this is something that most people who are involved with running have some basic idea that that needs a that this is something that needs to be addressed, but oftentimes don't know uh, what exactly that is. Uh, and then, in terms of the physical side of things, we need to ensure that someone has the physical capacity, literally the the motor that is going to drive the car, so to speak, so that we're not only uh, have an efficient transfer of force, but we have a big engine that can produce a lot of force. Uh, and if we can address both of these two things, we will raise that ceiling of how fast someone can run. And that has a lot of trickle down benefits 
uh, obviously for sprinters and, and uh, middle distance runners, uh, but, but for long distance runners as well. Yeah, there's a lot of different components to get, you know, getting faster speed development and improving your sprinting ability. Um, you know, I was looking at my old USATF um, coaching education book and, you know, there's, there's three, I think, areas here. There's acceleration, there's your absolute speed or your maximal velocity, which is essentially the top end speed that you can reach. And then there's speed endurance. Can you talk about what exactly those things are and, and, and maybe, um, you know, how we can go about improving each of them? And I know that's a huge question, so we can keep this uh, a little bit more general for our audience today. Sure. So acceleration refers to an athlete's ability to make themselves move faster. And if, if you think about it in terms of a car, typically we're assessing acceleration uh, in terms of moving your body from a resting position up to a higher velocity. And typically in track, we use that same definition. Uh, so this has a lot of relevance for sprinters when they are starting from uh, zero velocity in the block, say, and they need to get themselves up to speed relatively quickly. Uh, that's a pretty significant portion of a race if you're a sprinter, uh, much less so if you're a middle distance or long distance runner. Uh, acceleration still does play a role, but it's, it's not as classically defined as we might see, uh, as we talk about it in USA track and field terminology, we might still see acceleration, uh, but it is moving from in a, in a course of a, say a marathon race, but it's moving from say, uh, you know, seven meters per second to 7.5 meters per second. It is a race surge rather than a, than a classical sprint acceleration top end speed or maximal velocity has a lot of relevance for uh, all athletes uh, in particular, or obviously for sprint athletes. I think it has a lot of uh, benefit for distance runners as well. When we talk about top end speed, this is basically how fast someone can run period. And I think this has uh, quite a bit of relevancy for all events because uh, the faster you run, the higher that ceiling is that I was just referring to. When the ceiling is higher, that means that we can run at sub-maximal speeds a lot easier. Right? So, if, for example, if, we're, if we are talking about this in terms of relevancy for distance runners, uh, if I do have the capacity to run at 11 meters per second, which is pretty darn fast, um, then and, and in a marathon, I only need to run – seven or eight meters per second, that's my goal pace, say, if that's a very fast, very fast time, then that seven or eight meters per second is very fast, or, or sorry, it's very slow compared to what I'm physically capable of. Um, in, in terms of numbers that might make more sense to your average person, if I'm capable, or let's put it this way, a marathon, a world record marathon is something like 430 mile pace for 26.2 miles. That's uh, 200, 2 minutes 15 seconds for an 800 meters. That's 67-ish seconds for a quarter mile. That is 16 or 17 seconds for a 100-meter sprint, basically. If your 100-meter sprint is, a, is the fastest you can possibly run is 17 or 18 seconds, then there's no way you could ever approach uh, an elite-level marathon because – you have to repeat that 
uh, several hundred times over. Uh, we need to have a buffer in terms of what our maximal speed is uh, if we are expecting to repeat that multiple times over. So it's obviously important for sprinters, uh, but equally important for distance runners to have a great uh, top end speed. Speed endurance, as it's kind of classically defined in USA track and field or terminology, refers to how well you hold on to your top speed. So even in a 100-meter dash, we do see that uh, the top athletes who have ever lived will still decelerate. So for example, Usain Bolt uh, will hit top end speed at around 50 to 60 meters. Uh, he will hold that for anywhere between 20 and 30 meters, and then he'll start to drop off. This is the fastest man who has ever lived. He's still decelerating for 10 to 20 meters. Your average human being is going to accelerate or decelerate at the end of a 100-meter sprint by two to two and a half times that amount. If we take that down to, a say, a middle school athlete, they're going to be decelerating in a 100-meter dash for as long as about half the race. So even though you're asking them to sprint the full 100 meters, it's physiologically impossible. They'll be decelerating for a good 40 or 50 meters of that. Uh, and speed endurance refers to how well you hold on to your top speed. So if we hit top speed, how, how long can you hold on to it? What percentage of that top speed can you hold on to for a given period of time? Again, out of those three different definitions of speed, I think in terms of uh, everything other than a sprinter, top end speed is the one that has the most relevancy. Uh, if we can improve that top end speed, uh, you raise the ceiling. If we raise the ceiling of what our 100% capacity is, then our ability to run at, at sub-maximal paces also gets raised. We create a buffer uh, where um, it, it, we're just much more efficient with our use of energy, uh, much more efficient to run at any given pace. Uh, and that allows us to uh, have greater performances even on these long distance races. Yeah, there's, that's a concept I'd love to talk a little bit more about. You know, I've you know, very recently started talking more about how your speed is really a skill. And I think one of the things that recreational runners tend to avoid is, you know, this really fast kind of work. You know, they're not doing... Um, shorter repetitions. They're not doing, you know, more classic sprint workouts. And not that I'm saying, you know, that needs to be a focus in their training. Of course not. They're training for longer races. But, you know, I think when you're, uh, when your training age is very low or you're a relative beginner, you know, focusing on the skill of being able to run really fast is really important because it opens up more doors for you later on down the road uh, in terms of running faster at the longer races that, uh, I think you, you touched upon and, and you really, I, I think you explained it a lot better than, <laughs> than I have in the past. Um, so, you know, with all that said, you know, I've worked with so many runners, thousands of runners, and there's, there's usually this big disconnect between, you know, how most runners talk about speed work and how a lot of coaches think about speed work. Do you think the average distance runner does quote speed work? Not, not as I would define it. Um, and I think it's a, it's definitely a shortcoming in their training. As you, as you alluded to, I don't think it's something that you need to spend a lot of time on. Obviously, uh, the, 
most specific aspects to performance should should be trained as such. And that would obviously be, uh, you know, your aerobic capacities and uh, anaerobic glycolytic, that kind of thing. But I think if you can improve the mechanics uh, of running, it has tremendous benefits for you. If we can improve the uh, neuromuscular mechanical efficiency of an athlete, it has a, a, a host of benefits, right? A lot of people recognize that the 100 meters is this highly technical event. Okay. Uh, and most people accept that, especially in the running community. They accept that the 100 meters, uh, while it does have this huge genetic and physical component, we can see these guys are heavily muscled and they're strong and they're powerful. Most people recognize that it has a technical component and they need to work on it as a skill. But the distance running community as a whole has not fully adopted this, this same uh, level of importance or place the same level of importance on running as a skill. And I think this is a little bit misguided. Again, to make this point, I would say something to this effect. In in the 100 meters, the top people in the world are making somewhere between 40 and 50 contacts with the ground. 40 and 50 contacts with the ground. Each one of those is an opportunity to influence the performance of the run, of the race. So, in, in the 100 meters, we have 50 contacts at the most at the elite level where our technique can improve or hurt performance. Well, think about that for the 200 meters, right? Now we're at 200 or we're at 100, 100 or so contacts. In the quarter mile, we are at uh, 200 uh, opportunities to affect the, the race performance. And you extrapolate that out to the the marathon, and I think I did the math on it one time, it's several thousand contacts, several thousand contacts you're making that have the opportunity to, to impact your performance. And now you see really quickly that uh, technique can have a huge bearing on distance running performance. And unlike in the sprinting events, it's not just mechanical performance. Now we actually see that the technique also has energy system and and uh, race distribution components to it, right? So now if I'm more mechanically proficient, maybe I get uh, less muscle breakdown. And over the course of a two-hour race, maybe a, a little bit less muscle, break, muscle tissue breakdown starts to impact performance. Maybe I'm, the energy cost of my performance on each stride is 1% or 2% less because I'm touching down in the right place or whether that's um, relative to my hips or on my uh, maybe I'm four foot running or whatever it is. If, if I can be one or two percent more proficient uh, and save a little bit of energy over the course of a two hour race, that has huge implications for performance. So I think we're really missing the boat if we are not addressing technique for distance runners uh, again, I don't think it needs to be a, a focal point necessarily. It doesn't need to be the primary focal point like it does for sprinting. We've got a lot of other things to work at with distance runners, but I think a, a little bit of work can, you know, can go a really long way. And even just exposing someone to true sprint-like workouts will allow the body to, to self-optimize a little bit, and you'll you will see improvements in technique 
just by exposure to these high intensity sprint workouts. It's not going to fix itself uh, 100%, but exposing someone to true sprint workouts where the quality is high and there is a, a technical demand component involved, I think will address a lot of issues that are not even being, uh, you know, really even touched on in the distance community as a whole. Yeah, I can't agree more with you there. And I think, um, you know, you mentioned steps and you extrapolated that out for the marathon. I just did the math really quick. If you take 180 steps per minute for a three-hour marathon, you're taking over 32,000 um, steps. So that's a lot of opportunities for improvement if your form uh, it leaves things to be desired. Um, so yeah, that's, it really goes to show how important that is. Um, now you, you mentioned true sprint workouts. Can you give us an example or two of what a true sprint workout would look like? Because, you know, for me, I look back on my college racing days and we would always, you know, make fun of the sprinters because 75% of the time we were on the track doing our workout, they're just walking around and they were actually running for such a short period of time. And, you know, we, we knew, you know, we were just joking with, with our sprinter friends, of course, uh, you know, the, their demands of that workout require them to take very long recoveries and, and there's usually walking recoveries. Um, and, and this is usually very alien to distance runners, especially runners who started running later in life. They don't have any experience with being on a track and field team. So can you give us a, a couple examples of what a true sprint workout might look like? Sure. So we have to go back to uh, some of the, the earlier things we discussed uh, with those two components, one being uh, the mechanics of speed, and then the physical capacities associated with speed. And what we're going to see uh, is that sprinting is is not quite the same as just running fast. So with other activities, say, for example, um, throwing a ball, right? I can throw the ball. I can pitch uh, with with more or less intensity, you can't sprint with more or less intensity. You have to sprint. Sprinting is a thing that only operates in higher intensities. Uh, as soon as it drops down below a certain threshold and the exact line in which we draw that threshold can be debated, but it's somewhere in excess of 90% uh, of 100% sprint capacity then it's no longer sprinting. It is something else. It is running. It is uh, tempo, but it is not sprinting. And, and if it's not sprinting, we're probably not developing sprint speed very well, not, not very proficiently. Um, so the intent, we have to reach that stimulus threshold. Um, and for when, in, when intensity is involved, there are a couple factors that we have to consider. One is that by its very nature, intensity and volume are going to be in an inverse relationship with one another. So we, if we're sprinting, we can't do a lot of it. This is why we see the sprinters walk around. They might do a workout that consists of 200 or 300 meters of total volume, and then they have to shut it down, and they've rested uh, you know, in, in a ratio of – one second or one, one to 30, you know, they, for every second of effort that they put out, they're resting for 30 plus seconds of effort. Um, 
you know, this, as you say, is very foreign to a lot of distance runners. And um, because the, the thought in the distance running community is that we just go, go, go and rest is a bad thing. And, and I think for ener- when our goal is energy system fitness, there's some truth to that. But if our goal is uh, creating a, a neuromuscular stimulus and keeping both the quality of effort and the quality of movement high, then we can't do a lot and we have to work really hard. Typically, when we're talking about speed work, our rep distances have to be shorter than about 50 meters, right? If we go much longer than that, we're working on something a little bit different, maybe speed endurance, something like that. Um, so we have to keep the rep distances relatively short. The intensity has to be quite high, at least 90%. Again, if you're going below that threshold, you're probably not sprinting. You're just running fast. And the EMG studies, the training studies that look at the effect of running at different thresholds on sprint speed indicate that if we get below this certain threshold, we're just not going to improve speed. Uh, we might improve something else, but we're not improving speed, top end speed. So we need to keep the rep distances short. We need to keep the intensities high. And then because of the we're, go, our goal is to keep the intensities high, our rest intervals have to be relatively long. Now for distance runners, who have a highly developed aerobic energy system, they're going to be able to recover a little bit faster than your than your sprinter will. Their aerobic energy system will allow them to regenerate ATP a little bit quicker. And ATP is the fuel, it's the fuel for everything, but it is the primary fuel for sprint performance. Now that said, we're still not going to be able to defy physiology. And even in the best case scenario, for a distance runner, they're still going to take a significant amount of rest. So, for example, for that 50-meter sprint, if we're trying to uh, develop speed, that 50-meter sprint, a distance runner might still need to take uh, anywhere between two and three minutes of rest. Right. So that's going to mean that when they walk back to the line to start their second rep, they're going to feel okay. They will, there will be no metabolic fatigue. Their heart rate will, will have recovered. Uh, they will say to the coach oftentimes, hey, I'm ready to go. I feel fine. I'm ready to go. Uh, but we know from looking at uh, ATP regeneration on maximal efforts, we know from uh, putting guys on timing gates and watching the decrement of sprint performance when there is insufficient rest that if you allow that rest and recovery period to get too short and the shortest that that I've really seen is um, that I see the the shortest that I would uh, suggest going to is probably about 30 seconds of rest for every 10 meters of running uh, that you're just not going to be working on speed. The quality of the effort and the quality of the movement will drop off. So things will start to look ugly, uh, meaning they can't work on technique. Things will, the intensity of the effort will, will drop. We'll get what I'd call fatigue constrained intensity. 
just because that person is starting to fatigue metabolically, uh, they will not be able to fully stress the neuromuscular system as we would like to see if our goal is to develop speed. So a, a classic uh, speed workout for a sprinter might be something like eight times 30 meter sprints uh, with three minutes of recovery. That's what a sprinter might do. And for most distance runners, they would hear something like that and think that it's kind of laughable. Uh, for a distance runner, uh, a speed workout, that that probably wouldn't quite be appropriate, wouldn't quite be necessary to do that. But we'd alter it on several fronts. One, I probably wouldn't do flat-out accelerations, first and foremost, because they don't spend much of their time using acceleration mechanics or needing the physical capacities to accelerate well. Those are slightly different than top-end speed. So maybe instead of running 30 meters from a stand start, what I might have them do is jog in for five meters or 10 meters or something like that. So they jog in for five meters, they start upright, and then they do a 20 or 30 meter sprint from a five meter jog in. Uh, we could do five or six of those, might be sufficient. We don't need to do a ton of them. Sprinting is a unique thing in that we don't need to do a lot of volume to see to meet stimulus threshold. It's not quite like uh, distance running and, and getting up into these really insane mi weekly mileages. You, you really need very little uh, total volume in terms of sprinting to, to reach stimulus threshold. And then again, because the, the athletes tend to be a little bit more or a lot more aerobically fit, they're going to recover a lot faster. So instead of that sprint workout where we do eight times 30 meters from a from a uh, crouch start or a block start with three minutes of rest in between each one. Maybe we do uh, five or six times 20 meters from a five meter jog in and we only take a minute and a half of rest in between each one. And that minute and a half is going to be sufficient to allow them to uh, recover metabolically, recover energy system wise um, be, and be able to keep the quality of the effort and the quality of the movement where we would want it. Uh, again, there you're looking at a total of about 100 total meters. Each one needs to be at maximal intensity. They need to be really getting after it on those things. Uh, you, you're not going to you're not going to reach stimulus threshold on that if you're if you're running at say mile pace or even your quarter mile pace. You need to be going flat out uh, on those to 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 uh, affect a change in speed, especially if that's all you're doing for the week to improve speed. You need to you need to get that intensity up there, upwards of ninety ish plus percent of total and what someone is capable of. Yeah, there's a, a workout I use with my athletes somewhat regularly, uh, and there uh, I think it was popularized by uh, Renato Canova, uh, Brad Hudson up here in Boulder. But uh, they're hill sprints, and they're about eight to ten seconds in total length, uh, and they're run up a very steep hill at you know, 100% maximum effort. And I've always found that runners tend to have a little bit of a difficult time executing this type of workout, simply because they have trouble running at 100% effort, you know, they have a really hard time running at a, a sprint, a, a maximum velocity, and they don't take enough rest. So, you know, after a, an eight second all out sprint, 
you know, you have to walk down the hill. You know, I usually advise about two to three minutes of uh, walking or just kind of resting before you start the next repetition. And uh, it's kind of a very different type of workout that distance runners have a hard time wrapping their head around. You know, they want to just jog to the bottom and start again. They want to run these sprints at kind of a, you know, a 90% effort. Uh, but you're not, you're not really going to get all the benefits of it by doing it that way. Now let's uh, let's talk about you know let's say someone's training for uh, a half marathon or a marathon. They're a, a recreational runner and they know that you know they're going to be taking 35 or 40 thousand steps over this marathon, and they want to be able to improve their uh, their mechanics and their their running economy. Uh, hopefully, they can improve their top end speed to make marathon pace just feel that much easier. How would you recommend a runner like this add in some speed development work to their training? The thing here is uh, there's a lot of bang for your buck in neuromuscular work for a distance runner. And with regards to raising that ceiling, we can tackle it in two ways. Obviously, the most specific and direct stimulus is going to be flat-out sprinting, Uh and I think that should be included at least once a week, whether it is uh, hills or uh, resisted runs can be quite nice or sprinting on the track in, in for short distances with longer recovery periods. I would definitely suggest that that kind of thing be included at least once per week. And again, it needs to be done when you're relatively fresh. Uh, you can't be putting that kind of thing after uh, a long run for the week because that would create a scenario where you're attempting to uh, reach high intensities in a fatigue constrained uh, scenario. You can't actually get to the intensities you'd need to. So you need to be doing it relatively fresh, whether it's as a, as a separate session or at the beginning of a session. Uh, but you can't do it fatigued. So you have to have long rest periods. You have to prioritize it, relatively speaking, in the order of the session. Um, and it only needs to be done once or twice a week. The other thing that I think uh, can be done to great effect is speed power work outside of the uh, outside of the track or the trail or the or the uh, the park. Uh, doing plyometric work, doing strength work. Will, will impact one of those two prongs that we talked about earlier. So developing the physical capacities for speed is all about enhancing neuromuscular efficiency, how well muscles turn on and off, whether you can stop muscles on one side of your leg from fighting the muscles on the other side of your leg, uh, how well you get uh, power communication across joints, all of these things have a huge implications for improving running economy, and, and the research evidence is, is really strongly in support of this. So getting into the weight room and doing similar types of things that you would see a sprinter do, heavier lifting or faster lifting, uh, can, have a, can have a large positive impact on running performance in, in the distance events. Um, there's several studies out there on this, and uh, the, as I said, the research on it is really conclusive. Uh, and the nice thing about it is that you don't have to do very much. In fact, there are some studies that have looked at, uh, say, two different groups, and one group adds extra mileage, 
and the other group adds uh, 20 minutes of neuromuscular power training, and the group that adds the neuromuscular power training in the form of plyometrics or weight room work always beats the group that adds extra mileage. If, uh, and again, this is talking about a trained athlete already. So we're not talking about someone who you're not going to get better at running a 5K by only doing this neuromuscular work. But if you already have a pretty solid uh, aerobic and energy system fitness, you're going to get much more bang for your buck by adding in this neuromuscular uh, work. And the the benefits of this, as I say, are really quite conclusive. The The research suggests that you'll see um, anywhere between 2 and 7% improvements in, in running economy and about a 3 to 5% improvement on running performance. So imagine just adding in one or two 20-minute sessions a week in the weight room or plyometrics on the track and improving your running performance, whether that's 5K or marathon, by 2 to 5%. You haven't done any extra running, but you improve your running performance by 2 to 5% just because you became more neuromuscularly efficient. Um, you know, I think if you, if you sell it like that and point out that the benefits can far outweigh the extra time that you're, you're actually having to put into your training program, uh, you know, athletes will begin to see that uh, this type of work can, can be very, very beneficial. Uh, to, to get this effect, though, we, we see that we need to be following very similar guidelines to what we already discussed uh, with regards to the sprint recommendations, meaning we need to have the intensity relatively high. Uh, and in the weight room or in plyometrics, intensity can be, can be a function of a couple different things. The easiest way to look at it, the most traditional way to look at it, is through simply lifting a lot of weight, load on the bar, or, or lifting uh, uh, the most mass, basically. And the other way to look at it would be the speed. So basically, the force contribution of the athlete needs to be needs to be huge. Uh, if the weight on the bar is high, we know that the force output's got to be high, but Physics tells us that that's not the only part of the equation that we can reach that high force output by also moving something really fast. So we either have to be moving very fast or we need to be moving a nearly maximal weight. Um, and in terms of percentages in the weight room, if, if athletes were, say, familiar with this, that's probably going to be somewhere in the range of about 80-ish plus percent of what someone is physically capable of doing for for uh, one repetition. They need to be in that ballpark uh, for several repetitions uh, to, to be seeing this neuromuscular benefit. Um, or moving moving the weight and, and or their body with maximal intent. So they're moving as fast as possible. Uh, again, we need to have an emphasis on high quality rather than volume. We don't need to do a ton of work here. Uh, we don't need to uh, – or we need to observe appropriate rest and recovery periods. So it, it, we are not turning our weight room work into a, a metabolic or aerobic type of fitness work. That would be completely misguided and a complete waste of our time. We really want to make sure that we're using the weight room or plyometrics or sprinting for what it's intended to do, and that's enhance neuromuscular efficiency, 
And to do that, we need to use that tool the right way. Long rest periods, high intensity, relatively low volumes. In terms of other recommendations for, for the weight room, uh, you know, we, we really want to focus on the lower extremity, really. Uh, upper extremity does have some benefits. We, we want to train the athlete as an athlete, even if they're marathoners, obviously being careful not to add uh, excessive uh, mass that the athlete would then have to lug around for several miles or kilometers. But we want to make sure that the lower extremity is powerful per pound or kilogram of body weight. Um, and the lower extremity really is the engine that drives us. So this research that has looked at the effect of plyometrics and sprinting and weight room work on endurance running performance, the common denominators are high intensity, lower extremity multi-joint movements at high intensity with relatively long rest periods. So high intensity, lower extremity, loaded or fast, uh, high intensity, long recovery periods. You meet those criterion, you're going to see that the person becomes more neuromuscularly proficient. Again, we're seeing as much as 7% improvements in running economy. Most studies will show you for sure around 5%. And then we're seeing improvements on running performance again in the in the range of 3 to 5%, which I think uh, any runner, whether they're recreational or Olympic level, would, would love to have a 3% improvement in performance. That's a major PR. Yeah, people. yeah, I would I would kill for a 3% improvement. And, uh, you know, for to really put that in context, if you're running a 20 minute 5k, if you improve by 5%, just with some sprint training and strength training, you're going to improve by a minute. And so if you're running a slower 5k, uh, or if you're, you know, running a marathon, the margin of improvement uh, in terms of minutes is a lot more. And so it's a really compelling argument. And Mike, I'm really glad you brought up strength training as a way to improve your, uh, your mechanics and, and your absolute, uh, speed. So let's, um, can, can you get a little bit more specific in terms of, you know, what are some of the exercises that distance runners should be focusing on in the weight room? You know, I'm, I'm sure you're not going to say bicep curls. I'm sure you're not going to say, uh, you know, those kinds of more, you know, bodybuilder oriented type of type of exercises, but you know, what are, what are some great, types of exercises to do in the weight room and what is an approximate rep range that runners should be focusing on? Sure. So in terms of exercise selection, I think this is a, is a critical component. So what I'm looking for in terms of improving running economy are multi-joint movements, uh, lower extremity where the where it allows us to move either a large load or to move relatively quickly. So if we break that down, multi-joint, have, multi-joint as a requirement is going to rule out several different things. Um, it's going to rule out leg extensions and leg curls, adductor, abductor machine. Um, lower extremity is going to rule out bicep curls and shrugs and that kind of thing. They, they do have a place and I think they're perfectly fine, nothing wrong with them. But if we're talking again about improving running economy, we're keeping this to lower extremity, multi-joint. And then we need to be moving a, a relatively large load or being able to move something fast. So what allows us to move a large load? Uh, what allows us to move something fast? Well, 
the squat, uh, squat, lunge, and hip hinge type movements are the most fundamental lower extremity movements that we can do. And with squats, we're talking about uh, you know barbell squats. If it's someone who's new to the weight room, uh, a, a goblet squat or holding in the front rack position with, a, say, a dumbbell or a kettlebell is quite easy to learn. Um, I like all kinds of squats, but I think the barbell back squat would be my go-to if I were working with distance running, distance running community. Uh, it's the easiest to learn. It tends to be one of the safer alternatives. Uh, it's the one that shows up in the research literature the most. I don't think it's necessarily a, a magic exercise, but I think there is a reason it shows up in, in the research literature the most. And it's a, it's a basic exercise that a lot of people have access to, and it's relatively easy to perform. So a barbell back squat would be on my list for sure. Um, if you did have a coach who, or maybe some prior experience with Olympic lifts, then you should by all means be incorporating Olympic lifts. Um, Olympic lifts are activities like the snatch and the clean and jerk. If you weren't well-versed or didn't have a coach to show you how to do those, and it's not something I would necessarily recommend trying to learn on your own, then you can look at what makes the Olympic lifts so beneficial. And the Olympic lifts are the king of power production. Uh, There have been multiple studies looking at power outputs, of different weight room activities and the Olympic lifts overwhelmingly went out over practically all other lifting uh, movements. So what makes them so special? Well, they are lower extremity. The lower body is the strongest, strongest half of our body. It has the capacity to produce the most power uh, and they have a high velocity component to them. So there's this explosive element to the Olympic lifts that uh, creates a high neuromuscular demand, and we're using multiple joints. Now this this is a uh, meeting all the thresh meeting all the criterion that we talked about before: lower extremity, multi joint, high velocity, and high load in in Olympic lift. So they're really fantastic in terms of uh, developing neuromuscular efficiency, lower extremity power, that kind of thing. If you don't have the capacity or someone to coach you into learning those, well, what can we do to substitute out? They're not a magic pill. Again, there's no one exercise that that is uh, irreplaceable. So what do we look for to – substitute for Olympic lifts. Well, maybe a jump squat would work fine. Maybe a kettlebell swing would work fine. Those are all relatively easy to learn activities uh, that will meet those same criterion. And then that would be a kind of squatting, pulling type of thing, exercises. I also like hip hinge type movements. I think they're really good for developing uh, posterior chain or hamstring, glute, tie-in strength, which tends to be an issue with a lot of distance runners. Uh, It's both great for developing resistance to injury as well as uh, enhancing speed. The the hamstring and glutes tend to be very important for running really fast. And if they're underdeveloped, you're not going to run really – you're not going to run to your potential. So for uh, posterior chain, I like activities like the Roman – uh, Romanian deadlift, uh, glute ham raises, uh, that kind of thing. 
So those are what I'd categorize as hip hinge type of movements. And then if you can, and these are quite easy to learn, is lunges. So lunges are the third basic lower extremity movement pattern that I like to see. Squats being the first, hip hinge being the second, and then lunging being the third. If you check off check off those three boxes, you're going to be pretty safe in terms of exercise selection. Uh, I keep it relatively simple. Forward lunges or split squats tend to be what I use the most. You've got a lot of different exercises at your disposal within each of those three categories. In terms of uh, sets and rep protocols, I don't think you need to do um, a ton of sets. You don't need to spend hours in the weight room by any means. Uh, But I think generally what I like to see is using these using the weight room as it's intended, which is to develop strength and neuromuscular efficiency. And to do that, we need to keep the rep ranges relatively low. For a distance runner, I'd probably suggest something in the range of five to eight reps uh, with a load, with a weight that is very challenging. So you, you can't choose to do eight repetitions uh, with a weight that would allow, that you could do 20 or 30 repetitions with. That's not going to cut it. You need to be able to have a, lo- a load or a weight that is going to challenge you. Alternatively, you could choose a lighter weight, but you have to move it really fast. You have to move it with full intent, maximal intent. Now, the, the caveat there is that if we're going to choose a lighter weight and we're going to move it with maximal intent or as fast as we can, we need to be careful that just because we can do a lot of reps with that lighter weight doesn't mean that we actually should do a lot of reps with that lighter weight. The goal, again, is to keep the movement quality and the effort very high, uh, and we don't want to have fatigue-constrained intensity. In fact, there are two studies that have just been released, 2016, which looked at the effect of two different training programs with the only difference from one training program to the other being the velocity drop-off of Uh, repetitions within a set. One group did repetitions until the velocity dropped off by 20% and the other group with the same load did repetitions until the velocity dropped off by 40%. So they did significantly more reps than another group. When they compared those two groups in terms of their performance on jumping tests and sprinting tests and how much they could lift uh, maximally, the group that did less reps, uh, so the group that did uh, to a decrement, a velocity decrement of 20%, perf- outperformed the group that did more reps. So this is very counterintuitive to what we might see or hear or think from a distance running community where, where the notion of more is better uh, tends to prevail. Again, the focus when it comes to neuromuscular work needs to be quality of movement, and and uh, quality of effort. If those two things are met, then you're gonna you're gonna see what you want out of that type of training. We can't be doing it when we're fatigued. So I would be doing uh, Olympic lifts if I can, squat and or lunge, and maybe some type of hip hinge uh, type of movement like a RDL. If you check all those boxes, there you got three exercises in a, in a session. Uh, I would maybe do four to six sets of uh, anywhere between five and eight repetitions for our squats, 
hip hinge movements, that kind of thing, maybe five to eight for a kettlebell swing. If you're going to use the Olympic lifts, they tend to be much more technically complex. I would probably limit my repetitions to no more than four repetitions there. Um, and then you can be in and out of the gym in 30 minutes, really touching all those bases. If you're, if you're intelligent and pairing, pairing, uh, work pairing different movement patterns or exercises together, you can throw in some upper body work in there as well. Uh, and not add any significant time to your, uh, workout session in the gym. For example, you could do a couple sets of push-ups or pull-ups in between your sets of squats. And while you're lower extremity is resting from the squat set. You could be working on uh, and spending your time doing pull-ups or push-ups uh, and, and increasing your, your time efficiency, so to speak, so that you're, you don't have to spend a lot of time in the gym to get a lot out of it. It seems like no matter what area of speed development we're talking about, whether that's sprinting or plyometrics or uh, lifting in the gym, there's this kind of overarching theme of power and of quality over quantity, which is, is definitely foreign to distance runners. You know, we, we are, like you said, we are always focusing on more is better, more mileage, more density of workouts in our training and, you know, less rest. So we're doing more, more running and more, more faster running. So doing this, uh, this kind of work, you know, you know, all the studies that you've, that you've mentioned, I think the, the benefits and the real tangible results that we can get from that are just so clear, but it definitely takes a very different approach than the approach we're used to as distance runners. So, uh, Mike, thanks so much. This, this was really helpful for me, uh, as both a coach and a runner. And while I, I normally don't listen to my own podcasts, but I, I feel like this one is going to be one that I'm going to come back to, uh, um, more than once. So thanks for all the detail and the background. Uh, before we go today, let's do some some rapid Q and a we'll do, uh, some quick, quick questions. Your answers don't necessarily have to be quick. Maybe we'll call it, um, well, some hit Q and a high intensity interview training. Uh, what's your favorite track and field event? The decathlon I'm cheating there. I get 10 events in one. No, that is, you're cheating. Is, is that for, uh, just because of the overall general athleticism that, that, uh, an elite level competitor needs to have? I was a decathlete myself, and uh, as a coach, that's what I prefer. That's what I like to coach. I think as a uh, as a coach, the challenge of working with ten very disparate events is uh, is unique to the decathlon, and is is a challenge that I like to take on. It's something that I think you're constantly juggling different physiological and technical variables, and seeing how you can make it work best. All right. So what do you personally think that the average distance runner neglects in their training? And we could probably choose from a couple of different things we talked about today. Uh, I think speed is speed and power development is certainly one of them. And then I think uh, the other thing that I see quite a bit, we do work with quite a few distance runners and uh, elite level triathletes at my training center is mobility work. Uh, I think one of the physical capacities necessary for running well and preventing injury is mobility and distance running tends to occur in a very short range of motion. You get a lot of distance runners who are very locked up in the lumbopelvic hip complex. A lot of them tend to be kyphotic. And then when they go to sprint fast, they may have the intent to run fast, but they don't have the range of motion necessary to do it. Uh, so I think addressing both 
the neuromuscular side of things with a high high speed, high power output type work that we talked about before, as well as some mobility in particular on the posterior chain and lumbopelvic hip complex can be very valuable. Yeah, and I'm sure it's only made worse by, you know, our, our lifestyle of generally being sedentary. And, you know, I think the average American sits for over nine hours a day. And so that's going to obviously wreak havoc on your mobility, especially in the hip and, and that whole area there. How soon do you think Usain Bolt's 100-meter world record will fall? I think it's going to be about 10 years. Um, wow. I think, he, I think he put it out there quite far. Um, 9.58 is about point, point, uh, 0.15 to point 0.2 seconds faster than we've got anybody currently running. Uh, I think we have some hopefuls out there right now that maybe could, could make me eat my words. But I think that performance, the 958, was so so far into the future that he's basically future-proofed the event. You know, I think the thing that is most telling there is that we've got a guy that won uh, triple Olympic gold in 2008, uh, won one of those golds since taken away for a, a teammate's doping violation, but triple Olympic gold at the time. And he's dropped off about a half a second in his 200-meter time, and he's still the best guy. So here's a guy he basically – he is like he came from the future, his performances. Uh, he improved he, – he escalated the event to such a huge extent that the rest of the world is just kind of catching up to him now uh, as he's coming back down to earth himself. Uh, so I think it's going to be a little while. That 958 really is out there. I think we're going to see some guys – you know, get in the nine sixes consistently, but even then that's, that's still a world away from nine, five, eight. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, okay. Final question for the distance runner listening to this, who's interested in learning more about sprinting. Do you have a, a favorite book or maybe a website or some other resource that you might want to recommend? So I think there's a handful out there. Uh, I, I do like Franz Bosch's book on running the, uh, the mechanics uh, section of that is very is very good. Uh, I think the USA Track and Field and U.S. Track and Field Cross Country Coaches Association certifications are very very good. Um, there's some great resources out there, some of which are some of which are free, uh, some of which you can find on YouTube or if you get to hear some some of these people out there on uh, at a clinic. Dan Paff is is excellent. Lauren Seagrave is excellent. Uh, there's guys like um, Stu McMillan. He doesn't talk too much, but he's he, he puts some great content out there in terms of um, videos and uh, and posts, micro tweets and micro posts, that kind of thing. Um, and then in terms of uh, I guess other videos or websites, I there's a handful out there. I personally like my own site, uh, EliteTrack.com. We put a ton of ton of free content on there simply faster has a lot of content on there from a lot of great great contributors so there's some decent stuff out there look for people who are uh, science-based and have some uh, practical application or, or kind of uh, you know foot on foot in the field I guess uh, rather than just someone who is uh, just research based or just someone who lucked into someone who's you know working with someone real fast, find someone who has, uh, who can back up what they're saying.
Yeah, can't agree more with that. And so there we have it. Mike, I really appreciate your time talking about this topic. This is something that I find really interesting. Um, and I think all runners uh, would benefit if they were to learn a little bit more about it so that they can have more well-rounded training and ultimately become a better athlete, not just a better runner. Uh, so finally, Mike, where can people find out more about your work and what you're up to these days? Uh, well, I have a training center in Cary, North Carolina. We we love having visitors stop in. It's called Athletic Lab. Uh, we do work quite a bit with uh, running groups and, and uh, track and field in particular, as well as a variety of other sports. We have a pretty active website there, uh, along with the one that I just mentioned, EliteTrack.com. I have a couple events coming up. Uh, one is a USOC event in Colorado Springs. I'm not sure if there's any availability left at it, but it's a pretty cool event in uh, on May 17th through 21st. It's going to be super high level. If you can make it out to that, it'd be fantastic opportunity for, for learning from a lot of really high level coaches. And then on June, June 3rd and 4th, I'm holding an event at my place with, uh, it'll be a lot of it focused on speed and power development. We've got some great guys coming in, Brad DeWeese, uh, Mike Stone, I'll be speaking myself, Matt Jordan. It's going to be a super high-level event in terms of high performance for athletic development, uh, and that will be at Athletic Lab. We'll have more, more info on that up shortly. Wonderful. Thanks again, Mike. This was really fantastic. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Wow, that was awesome. If you're a running geek like me, you thoroughly enjoyed all the detail and the practicality of everything that we talked about here in this podcast. I encourage you to learn more about Mike. Go to athleticlab.com, elitetrack.com, or you can find him on Twitter. And I'll admit, immediately after our conversation, I applied to attend that USA Olympic Committee Strength and Conditioning event in Colorado Springs this coming May. So if you're a coach, if you're a strength and conditioning specialist, I highly recommend it, and hopefully I'll see you there. Uh, and one final note before you go today, we talked a lot about strength training and how that can give you some of the same benefits as sprinting. And admittedly, I haven't done a great job covering more advanced lifting on the strength running blog, but that's about to change. I'm working with another USA weightlifting coach who also works with elite runners here in Boulder, Colorado, to develop programming for distance runners. While I don't have a lot to share right now about this new project, uh, if you're interested in it, make sure you're on the Strength Running email list. You can just sign up on strengthrunning.com, and I'll let you know more when it's time. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. <laughs>